0: Great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of Technology and Humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it.
1: My guest today is Laura Cabrera. Laura is an assistant professor at the Center for Ethics and Humanities and the Life Sciences at Michigan State University. Her research interests are in the ethical and societal implications of neurotechnology, in particular when this is used without a clear medical purpose, so I think for enhancement-related purposes in particular. She has been working on projects that explore the attitudes of the general public toward pharmacological and brain stimulation-enhancing interventions, as well as their normative implications she is the author of Rethinking Human Enhancement, Social Enhancement and Emerging Technologies, which was published in 2015 by Palgrave Macmillan, along with numerous other papers on the ethics of human enhancement. And today we're going to talk about two topics that arise from some of those papers that she's published in the past. The first is on how human enhancement can affect interpersonal communication, and the second is on how human enhancement can affect values. So, We'll get into those topics in a moment, but let me start with just a general question to you, which is just what is uh, human enhancement?
2: You know, that's a very interesting question, which obviously has to be asked. But if you go from the root, to the root of the word, right, human enhancement, it comes from enhance, which is intensify, increase, or improve something. And that's how generally is used in the in the human enhancement discourse. In in the book that you mentioned, for instance, I try to flesh out some of the differences of how the term is really used in practice, which means that for some people, let's say, if, if you take human enhancement on their more biomedical understanding, is contrasted with therapy. So generally, human enhancement would be pretty much every intervention that is going beyond the therapeutical aim. Um, but on a different understanding, human enhancement is going beyond what makes us human. So this, I call this a more kind of transhumanist uh, understanding of human enhancement. Um, I kind of suggested uh, even a third different way of understanding human enhancement, which I call social human enhancement. So this is just to kind of put into perspective the different uh, possibilities of how human enhancement is used. And that's why the term is so ambiguous. Um, and just to add a different layer there, uh, I'm not from an English speaking country originally. And when I try to translate human enhancement into Spanish, is it's a little bit difficult because there is not a precise term to really bring that ambiguity that you find in in the word enhancement. So the Spanish term, the one that is generally used, it tends to point towards a more positive outcome of, of the of, of enhancement, whereas enhancement per se doesn't need to be a positive outcome. It could lead to um, to negative things. No, that, that's a
1: it's a useful starting point. So. I, I'm definitely interested in the kind of translational problems here about th- this concept of han- enhancement, which is so prevalent in the English-speaking debate. And, and as you point out, it doesn't always have a positive connotation because you can you can enhance a faculty, like your memory or your concentration, but that can be a bad thing for you over, overall. So you're saying there's no direct analog of that in, in Spanish because the equivalent term tends to always carry a more positive connotation, is that?
2: Yes. So the term that will come closest to the way at least I've been translating enhancement would be improvement. Improvement is just one way of, of one possible outcome of enhancement. It's not the only possible one. And so I've been... Really trying to, you know, talk with other people that are Spanish-speaking scholars and people interested in the topic, and I haven't really found that someone has come up with a good term for for bringing this ambiguity of outcomes. And some and some people, at least in the English discourse, have tried to to say, well, human enhancement is very, you know, it's very ambiguous. It's a it's a very charged concept. So let's try to use something that is more you know, to the point of what we want to really say. And so then some people would use terms such as optimization.
1: I wonder what you think, so you mentioned these kind of three definitions of of enhancement that you use, so the biomedical enhancement where the contrast is very much with therapy and therapeutical interventions. So Mm -hmm. an an enhancement, I guess, then is just anything that's sort of non-therapeutic. The transhumanist definition where you're looking at what the human norm is, so I guess there you're, you're saying that there's some sort of like species level norm for a particular set of capacities or a normal range that this capacity or ability falls within. Like, let's say there's a normal range for human heights. There's a few people who are very tall and most people are somewhere in the middle. And then there are a few people that are very short. And then an enhancement is anything that is sort of shifting us beyond or changing that curve or shifting us to the far end of that curve, the extreme end. Is that roughly that kind of transhumanist definition?
2: Yeah, I also kind of said that the, this has to be like really radical changes to, to what makes us human.
1: So it's beyond so, the human range.
2: Yeah, generally what I associate with the transhumanist type of human enhancement would lead to post-humans, uh, to technological post-humans.
1: Okay. And then this, the third one, then, social human enhancement. What What's the definition of that, or what's the idea there?
2: So with social enhancement, what I have in mind is to depart from these general kind of uh, views that underpin the the other two um, understand it, which is mainly that it's very individualistic. So when you talk about the biomedical, is you enhance yourself or uh, when you are going beyond, you know, when you're taking ADHD drugs, not because you have ADHD, but because you want to have more... Attention, for instance. So that's again an enhancement that is for you, for the individual, and similar with the transhumanist understanding. So for the social, I wanted to say, okay, we can use all these technologies, but these technologies doesn't need to be. They don't need to be about changing the human, but they can be used for improving humans in a non-direct way. So, for instance, um, an example that I give in the book has to do with environmental. Uh, interventions. So how can we change our environment to really improve the human condition? And so again, here's one of those situations where you see that generally human enhancement is still used with the connotation of, of a good outcome. How can we change things to improve humans, uh, but here really making an emphasis of as, as, as a society, as a population group, rather as than as an individual's
1: So that's an interesting concept. And the target of the enhancement, then, in that case, the target there is the environment in which the humans live, and improving that environment has this enhancing effect on the population as a whole. So there are other things we could talk about then as being enhancements, let's say, this might be a little bit controversial, but, you know, switching to democratic systems of governance might be deemed a social human enhancement. Would that be another example?
2: Yes, I think, I mean, you're right. And this is was one of um, the main problems i have with some of the reviewers cuz then in their minds and uh, maybe i mean this is something it, it is controversial because then they say well anything can be social enhancement and so where do you put the boundaries of what counts as social enhancement or not and yeah it, it it gets to be a tricky question of if any change in you know social structures systems environment can be framed as social enhancement then what is outside social enhancement, so to say. But yeah, for me, changing um, the democratic system in such a way that is, you know, the goal is to really improve the quality of human societies, that would be a social enhancement.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I like that. And it reminds me of, I think, was it Alan Buchanan in, in one of his books has a, has a similar view that he, he views what are referred to as biomedical enhancements as being on a continuum with these other kinds of social enhancements, like improving literacy rates and democratic governance. And you could also then include things like improving the environment in which, which people live. But I think that's a, that's a view, that's expansive approach is a view that is often favored, I'm guessing by proponents of enhancement, because they like to draw analogies then between the biomedical cases and these other examples of enhancement and say, look, it's all kind of the same thing. So why are we opposed to one and not the other? Whereas I think usually the uh, detractors of enhancement like to think that there's some principles, distinction between these these different categories. Uh, Do you have a view on that?
2: Well, you know, the more I have done research on this is, um, I think when I started, it was like, yes, there is a clear distinction. And then you realize, well, I am not sure anymore. I think... I don't think there's like a black and white. I think there's a spectrum and that's why it's so hard to position myself in either, you know, the kind of bioconservative or kind of really bioliberal type of positions. And th- the way I kind of, Try to work that out, in, in at least in the book and in my in my writing now, is to talk about okay, what what are the priorities that we as humans, you know, decided that we have to focus on? Perhaps the the type of priorities that we have now are you know global hunger, climate change, things that are not really gonna be fixed if you know individuals are kind of stuck with the idea of I have to have my individual enhancement and you know, become the best that I can. And that type of individualistic uh, frame would not really help us us humans to kind of uh, solve or address these more kind of human challenges. And so that our priorities now are faced to have this, this type of more kind of social enhancement to really bring everyone or as much as, as many people as we can to a certain level that we think is, you know, fair, and then perhaps after we have achieved that, then we can start thinking of more radical type of enhancement that are more individualistic based.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I don't necessarily mean to go on about the definitions of this for too long. It's interesting to me, but um, I don't know if it's interesting to everyone who's listening, but I, I can't resist asking just one other question. And I'm, I'm sure you probably know where I'm going to go with this, but there's a, a debate on you know moral enhancement, the concept of moral enhancement in, in the literature nowadays that we could use interventions to improve people's compliance with moral standards or uh, moral norms. So Julian Savalescu and um, Ingmar Pearson wrote this famous book, well, famous within a limited circle of people anyway, book mm-hmm. a few years ago called Unfit for the Future, which is about all these kinds of techno technological and environmental challenges that humanity faces and that we need to use moral enhancement technologies if we're going to face those challenges. Like what I detect in what you're describing there in terms of the social environment is something similar. So how do you feel about this idea of moral enhancement? Do you classify that as a human social enhancement, a social human enhancement? Sorry.
2: Well, the type of examples that I've read as moral enhancement, they, they still under this very kind of individualistic framework in right. which, you know, you give a drug to a, pe- a person, so, you know, oxytocin or something like that. So that's like my first kind of area of, of where I don't really agree, because then it's kind of going back to changing individuals, where for me it's kind of going beyond the individual first. And yeah. then.
1: So that's, you, that's interesting as far as. So the, the target of moral enhancement in Savalescu and Person's work is the individual. You're trying to change the individual's behavior, but the consequence of that, at least if you follow their argument, and I'm not saying that their argument is necessarily persuasive, is a social benefit.
2: Yeah. I agree that that's what they that what the argument points towards, but for me the 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 starting point does make a difference. So that's like one part. But then the, the the most important part is that for me to say that something is you know moral enhancement, it means that we have a clear understanding of you know what what is moral and what is immoral. But I don't think we do know or we have a clear basis. So that's where I guess it gets more problematic for me. Uh, how can we say that, you know, that people is more empathic is actually going to have a social positive outcome. So
1: yeah. yeah, I mean, so this opens up a whole other can of worms and <laughs> of, of definitions, which we won't get into. But if there are problems with defining what enhancement by itself is, there are definitely lots of problems with defining what moral enhancement is and whether something should, should count as a moral enhancement. But let, let's move on and go on to the first of our sort of main topics that I want to talk about. But which is human enhancement and communication, and it's interesting that in that in initial conversation about definitions, we were discussing this problem of you know, translating the idea of enhancement into into Spanish because this is something that kind of comes up in a paper that you published a few years ago. Not exactly translation problems, but communication problems with a John Wecker, is that his name? Yeah, uh, in twenty twelve, about human enhancement and communication. So I I really liked this paper because it drew attention to something that I just hadn't really thought about, which is the impact that enhancement technologies could have on the way in which we communicate with one another. Now, I, having read it, I have my own kind of reconstruction of the argument that you made in that paper, which I'll just set out, and then we might go through that argument premise by premise. And I don't know if you agree with uh, my reconstruction, but you're, you're welcome to disagree once I've set it out. So the argument that you made in that paper was sort of three premises and a conclusion, which is premise one that certain forms of human communication depend on us having what you refer to as a shared life world, a shared set of of beliefs and understandings. Second premise then was that having a shared life world depends to some extent on us having similar bodies, similar perceptual equipment, uh, similar socially embedded nature is one of the things you said. And then the third premise was some human enhancement technologies could affect our shared life world or could affect our bodies, our perceptual equipment and our socially embedded nature, which would have an impact on our life world, which could therefore lead to communication problems. And we should seriously consider what these communication problems might be. So first of all, is that a a fair reconstruction of what you're trying to to argue in that paper?
2: Yeah, I think probably the only thing that I would stress is that um, premise three, that some human enhancement technologies could affect radically our shared life world. Because for sure, I think all of our technologies affect in some way or another our shared life world, but we can only think of those that are really in a more radical way would affect them to, to really see this as a problem with human communication.
1: Okay, and I, I think we'll, we'll come back to that idea mm-hmm. of the distinction between a, a radical change and a, um, a less radical change. Change in our life world. Okay, so let's let's just actually go through the kind of concepts and ideas in that argument. Then, starting with this idea of a life world, what what is a life world, and, and why does communication depend on having a shared life
2: world? So basically, I take this idea of a life world from previous uh, writers that have used the term. So you have Thomas Nagel and, and Husserl, and basically, if I had to kind of summarize. How I take a, a shared life world to be is kind of referring to a set of shared values, abilities, belief, knowledge, perceptions, and, and kind of social factors that the we humans build up meaning about the world, and that's why, for instance, in, in having a certain kind of uh, embedded nature is important. Having as similar perceptual equipment is important
1: yeah i mean you you have some examples in the paper um from famous uh, philosophers like thomas nagel about. correct me if i'm wrong that having a shared life world is is to some extent equivalent to having this ability to grasp what it is like to be another person and one of his famous papers is about more about consciousness about lacking a shared life world with let's say a bat that we have no sense of what it is like to be a bat
2: yeah so for instance uh, the way I printed the paper was like, if, if you share a life world, you can grasp what it's like to be on a roller coaster, right? Like I can tell you, yeah, well, you, you know, you, you get on this little car and you go up and down and they like open side thorns and try to describe the, the experience. And then you can perhaps imagine what it would be like to be on a roller coaster, but Nagel, what he's saying is that my human shared life world would not be useful in trying to grasp what it's like to be a bat. And that's because we have, you know, different kind of uh, bodies, different kind of perceptual equipment. And therefore, our bi- biological and historical resources really limit our capacity to, to share a life world.
1: Yeah. And there's another famous um, remark from Wittgenstein, about this, where one sentence we said, that if a lion could talk, we wouldn't be able to understand it, which is based, again, on this notion that there's something radically distinct about the ways in which we experience and understand the world, which means we, we can't really communicate with uh, with the these other creatures, even if they could, could talk.
2: Yeah, and I think in the paper, so we try to be a little bit, um, you know, not, not having, like, very strong position, and we do say that maybe... It might be a little bit of a, an overstatement, given that, you know, humans and lions do share at least that they're both mammals and, you know, things like that. But that there comes a point, so we basically use these examples to really bring to people this idea of there might be situations or, or aspects that probably we won't be able to grasp. But yeah, I, I personally, I really like Wittgenstein, so I it really kind of ring with me when trying to when i was writing this paper to see what might be useful in trying to get people to understand that it's uh, if i see for, for instance if you if you're a dog person or you have a pet you might be able to to see when they're sad when they're you know like not feeling well and you can tell by their behavior and things like that but there are certain type of things that we wouldn't be able to communicate with them and th- so those are the type of things that i'm trying to get in this paper
1: yeah, and there are lots of examples of this in, in science fiction literature. I don't know how familiar you are with them, but um, have you ever read a novel called Embassy Town by China Mievo, I think it's his, his name? No? No, no. Okay, so that that's all about uh, translations between alien languages, and one of the things it, is that the alien... Aliens have two voice boxes, and they speak two words at the same time, and they can't understand human beings as a result. And humans can't communicate with them because humans lack this ability to say two words at the exact same time. Okay. Um, now you'd say, well, why can't like a pair of human beings do this, speak two words, you know, side by side? Well, it turns out that that doesn't work either because they need to have a shared mind to actually speak the two words in a way that the aliens understand and in the novel it's only special genetically engineered humans human twins who are engineered to have a kind of a shared mentality and can speak these words at the same time that can communicate with the aliens so i mean even in that instance you're talking about how biology affects speech and then affects communication and mm-hmm. i think i think these are ideas that are sometimes quite well explored or fleshed out in in the science fiction literature because it gives us a way of thinking about those communication problems that we don't really have or you know, moves us beyond our our human anthropocentric worldview and say, oh yeah, if we did have two voice boxes, maybe it would be very different how we how we communicate with one another, and we wouldn't be able to understand creatures yeah. that lack that um, that feature, that biological feature. So, I mean, we're getting into some of this already, but let's let's talk about the the effect that like embodiment has on our life world and how having different kinds of bodies affects our experience of of the world.
2: So, well, I guess. Uh, both the, the bat example and the lion example already brings or tries to bring to, to, in the, to the reader this idea of, well, we don't have wings, uh, we don't sleep, you know, in caves hanging upside down, or if you're a lion, we don't have a tail, we don't have like these four in our skin. And so really from a kind of phenomen- phenomenological perspective, just... Sensing the world would be so different, and I think that perception of the world would you know would not allow us to to share a life world because it would be different. It would be different to you know to to have this world covering all my skin and how would I feel the water or how I feel temperature, or maybe you know I have senses that allow me to perceive frequencies that we humans cannot perceive, so that's kind of what I think. It's important for a live, um, for sharing a live world, to have a certain level of uh, similarity in in, F- in our perceptual equipment.
1: Mm, And you have another good example, actually, in the paper. The paper is is filled with a number of of interesting examples, but one is from Lewis Carroll. um, Yeah. I I don't remember which novel this is. It's either Through the Looking Glass or Alice in Wonderland with the conversation with the caterpillar. Could you maybe just describe that conversation and how it affects communication or how it affects our sense of the life world?
2: Yeah, sure. So we use um, this little fragment, in which uh, Alice is uh, with a caterpillar and they're trying to... So the caterpillar says, no, Alice says, I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, because I'm not myself, you see? And then the caterpillar answers, well, I don't see. And so Alice replies, well, I'm afraid I can put it more clearly for I can't understand it myself to begin with. And being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing. And the caterpillar answered, well, it isn't. And so here what we're trying to play with or or show at least is that, so for Alice, it's really confusing to be changing sizes. So one time she's, you know, small, then it's very big. And so she's not used to that. Whereas the caterpillar, he is used to, you know, this type of body changes because as he moves, his sense of, you know, he goes from from short to long in order to keep moving. So for for him for it, <laughs> uh, that's not really that confusing. So we wanted to bring that to the reader to say, in in literature we already have cases where we can read how different different bodies and different perceptions of of, of the world through that body changes uh, would be would not allow us to have to communicate.
1: Mm. I mean the the caterpillar example is interesting. Because one thing you point out in, in all these sorts of children's novels is that the authors presume that we could have these meaningful conversations with these animals. Where Part of the aim in your paper is to maybe cast some of that into, into doubt. But at least in in the case of the caterpillar, in that conversation anyway, there's only one difference in body type or body shape that's alluded to that affects the life world, which is the fact for the caterpillar – increasing and decreasing in size is a part of the normal everyday experience whereas for a human being it's not part of the everyday experience but i mean this communication is still possible it's not like a a radical impact on on communication but so they just they just lack they they don't share this one feature characteristic so what i'm wondering is when it comes to enhancement what kinds of body enhancements are there that could affect communication and would they have a, a radical impact would they lead to kind of severe communication problems?
2: Well, that's definitely an empirical question. So it's really hard to say, oh, definitely there'll be, you know, technologies that will change our life world so radically that it would be a communication problem. But the possibility is there, and that's what we really wanted to, you know, to argue in the paper. It's like, well, since we don't know, we should think more about this, and we should do more research on what type of changes my... Um, affect our shared life world in in a way that is problematic mm-hmm. but in terms of enhancement technologies that could affect our bodies and that might have some repercussion into this shared life world i think of examples of for instance um like type of exoskeletons or or new prosthesis right in which you are not just helping people that already lose hand giving them another hand but you can think even adding an extra limb or giving you know wings to humans or yeah things that none other human have had before
1: mm, and i mean there is a prevalent strain within the transhumanist movement that are into um morphological freedom this idea that we should have the freedom to adjust our body shape um mm-hmm. as we see fit so we should be entitled to add wings to our graft wings onto our our backs or add new limbs are there people i seem to recall that there are in fact people who like to graft on tails or fake tails onto themselves Is that a phenomenon or is that something I want to look up on the internet right now?
2: (laughs) Well, there are people that uh, they do have this idea of morphological, they grasp this idea of morphological freedom and take it to the extreme where they will make changes to their bodies. Like they they will kind of tattoo, the special type of tattoos and type of kind of, I want to say burning, but I'm not sure if it's type of a burning so that your skin looks differently. I mean, through, through our history, of course, humans have, you know, changed their bodies and put things on it so it looks different. Perhaps we haven't reached the, the point in where we have added something to our bodies that really brings a communication problem. Yeah, there, there might be technologies that change our bodies, but not all of those will create a communication problem.
1: I mean, one thing that did occur to me that would definitely create this problem if it was feasible technologically or even you know, metaphysically possible, would be the um, uploading of a mind into a, into a computer, because then you're effectively no longer embodied in the same way. You're kind of completely losing contact with the, the physical body. And this assumes certain controversial theories of mind. But if that was possible, that, that would seem like it would be definitely a candidate for creating this communication problem.
2: Yeah, that would be like the uh, very radical and extreme way to get people to grasp the idea. But I have a hunch that there might be other changes that we re- we'll, well, no, maybe not now, but that are not that far and that might bring interesting ways in which our shared life rules are going to differ. So, not, not sure how much of a communication problem or how much um, meaning, meaningful communication will be challenged by it. But um, you know, I'm really interested in in the next couple of years how technology will keep changing our, our life world.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing I mentioned to you actually in, in email contact beforehand was how augmented reality devices might be changing a shared life world. I mean, this is something that people have mentioned a lot, that if you have an augmented reality headset that overlays different kinds of things onto reality you know, displays different sorts of information. That's sort of radically changing how you understand and engage with the world. Uh, and it might again it mightn't sorry, it mightn't be so severe that it creates complete communication breakdown, but it does create a very different set of experiences and it might be hard for people who who lack that to relate to you. And actually this gets me to the next question I was gonna ask, which is all about sensory perception. And this is something you go into in, in the paper quite some detail about how different sorts of senses could affect our communication. And one of the big examples you have is to do with blindness and communication between people who um, are blind and people who are not blind. And you, you, you contrast two different case studies. So maybe you could talk about those. One is a conversation between the philosopher Brian McGee and a guy called Martin Milligan. And the other one comes from a short story by, by H.G. Wells. So maybe you could just explain those, those two case studies and how they illustrate this problem with perception and communication.
2: Sure so the first one um that we used was as you said the the case of the two philosophers one sighted and one blind we used this case to show that even though one was sighted and the other one was blind they still could you know communicate and and that they seem to have access to similar things, even though, I mean, the beginning of, of this uh, of the book, they have a book, these two philosophers, uh, in which they have different letters talking about their whether it was possible or not for them to, you know, to, to share or to understand the 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 world in a different in a similar way. Yeah. And so, for one of them, so for Milligan, the the blind philosopher, he he thinks he can. Do just about everything that side people can do, the other one kind of doubts that this is true, and then I use the case of Frank Jackson that he has on Mary and the black um, and the black box where well, she she's in this room and she has to learn about color. so that was kind of used to again to bring the point of, of um, what you need to experience in order to really be able to communicate about about things
1: so maybe you could just explain that that, that thought experiment, though so the mary the colorblind scientist and just to set it up so so the idea is that you have mary who's a color scientist who's living her entire life in a in a black and white room but she studies everything there is to know about color from a kind of third person perspective she knows about how um color hit the eye and how the brain reacts to it and all that kind of thing so she knows all that third person information about the human experience of color but she herself has spent her entire life in a black and white room and has never actually experienced any other colors.
2: And so for Jackson 1, he believes that, you know, when she emerges into the outside world, she will, you know, she would know about color. But for Jackson 2, he believes that she wouldn't. And that's because for the first one, phenomenal aspect of vision is is, you know, scientific, is materialistic and so it adds nothing. Whereas for Jackson 2, you kind of need that part to to understand. You need it's to a, Yeah,
1: you need to actually experience the color to understand what it means to experience the color. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of a circular way of putting it, but that's it. That's what he's saying. There's some there's some knowledge that you gain from experiencing it that you will always lack from studying it from a third person perspective. Exactly.
2: So in the case of these two philosophers, so Maggie does seem that there's a kind of a, a big problem because they don't have access to the same type of knowledge. So for him, the blind don't have access to all of the knowledge that the sighted do. Now, what we tried to put in the paper was like, well, how does this raise serious communications problems? Um, At the end of the book, you realize that they actually, they they are able to discuss the external world in a meaningful way, even though their phenomenal experiences were different. So then what we did after that was to put, as a contrast, the short story by H.E. Wells, The Country of the Blind. And in this story, so the main character is Nunes and he he falls into a valley in the Andes where people in this valley have gradually lost their sight and eventually all are blind and nobody remembers anything about sight. And Nunes is kind of, he has issues with kind of communicating and understanding because you know no one really knows what what he's referring when he's trying to talk about color and uh, about other type of things and so we bring this example to show that even though the first example we couldn't really find that there were you know a problem with meaningful communication the second case shows that there are cases where being in this case, cited in a blind community does bring issues of communication
1: yeah, so there's a a hypothesis I think you're making here in, in the paper, which is worth underlining and emphasizing, and I sort of I kept a note on this so the hypothesis seems to be that uh, lacking a sense a perceptual sense in a community in which the majority have that sense does not create communication difficulties or significant communication difficulties so Brian McGee and Martin Milligan are able to have a conversation because Milligan lacks the sense that the majority of the population have. So he's learned how to communicate with everybody else who has that sense. Whereas the contrasting hypothesis from the HUL's short story is that having a sense, having a perceptual sense that the majority lack will create communication difficulties. So Nunes is able to see, but nobody in the valley is able to see. So they've They've learned to communicate. They've developed a a language, presumably, that is attuned to the fact that they lack this sense. They just can't really understand or communicate with somebody who has something that they all lack. That seemed to be the hypothesis to me in the paper. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. And I think there's even like a second one, which would be the kind of the rate of the change. You could call it that. So in the first case, one was, you know, was born in a world where we have already uh, come up with a way in which uh, we, we teach and we interact with people that are blind. So while he was growing up, he was introduced to this kind of sighted world, even though he was blind. Yeah. But in the case of Nunes, he kind of, he fell into this valley. So there was, it was it was a very radical kind of change for the inhabitants of the valley to receive someone with this new sense. So there was no way to introducing him to, they didn't have any uh, system to
1: to bridge Ooh. the translation gap, yes. or the, the, the gap between their life worlds. Exactly. You, you could bridge that gradually over time, perhaps, but they just didn't have the opportunity or the chance to do that within the, the confines of the, of the story anyway. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's interesting, again, because I mean, one thing that I guess enhancement technologies could do potentially is to create new kinds of senses. And that could then cause these communication problems that the people who've undergone the enhancement or acquired these new senses have something that the majority then lack and so there is this translation problem, this gap between between life worlds. In fact, there are some you know test cases of this, isn't it? There? there are there are people who have kind of acquired new senses. You mentioned some of them in, in the paper.
2: Yeah. So w- when we started the paper, we um, in the beginning we mentioned the um, Thomas Nagel, uh, what it's like to be a bat. And so we wanted to use echolocation as as an example of um, of a sense that the humans don't have and the bats do. But then as we kept doing research, we actually we found out that there are cases of blind people that develop a sort of a form of a collocation. In which they use their tongues and mouths, um, then listen to the returning echoes. So that's basically because we still share the sense for collocation in a way, which is based on hearing and you know being able to produce certain sounds. Um, trying to to think in other examples is okay. Well, you might be a- able to collocate, but that doesn't mean that you're able to perceive the same um, frequencies, and that might be different. It's like I think, for instance, of dogs, like when you are, they they can hear certain frequencies that we can't, and so you can see how they get very, you know, excited or annoyed by certain noises that you are like, okay, what's going on here? So that's a type of senses, changes to senses or enhances to senses that we can have and that could present a problem.
1: Mm, And uh, again... So we we could create a device that translated high pitch frequency sounds into into a frequency that we could hear, or maybe we could create some sort of neural prosthetic that allowed us to process high frequency sounds that might be conceivable, and then we, we would acquire this this perceptual capacity that we currently lack, and maybe that would bridge the gap between our life world and let's say the life world of of a dog.
2: And I think here what is interesting is also to think of okay, what is the difference. In, because I mean we already have technologies that allows us to bridge, kind of okay we cannot hear these frequencies but we have technology that can and then we just need to read out what the you know this measurement technology is telling me, or you know like we have special type of lens of glasses that allows us to see infrared or things that we generally wouldn't be able to. To access. But is there a difference then between those external technologies and actually having kind of a, a neuroprosthesis or a genetically enhanced human being where you don't need that external technology? So I think that's a question that, I mean, we, we need more empirical evidence to know whether there are significant differences or not. But to me, that's also a way to bring back this, uh, you know, being embodied and what does it mean to actually process in, in your own biology, certain inputs.
1: Yeah, I mean, so that's something I'm very interested in as well, because uh, of debates about like the external mind and the difference between an internal mental capacity and an exter- uh, a mental capacity that's shared between your, your brain and some external device. So I'm one of these people who thinks that, I'm a little bit skeptical of the extended mind, particularly from a phenomenological perspective, that I think there is something distinct about the phenomenology of, of remembering something, inside your own head and remembering something by looking it up in a notebook or in your phone or something like that. And so, I mean, that's kind of what you're, you're saying there. We, having a set of goggles that allows you to see infrared is different from, let's say, genetically reengineering human sight so that we can see infrared. Or, or there, Sorry, we don't know if there's a difference, but there could be a difference that is worth considering or exploring. Okay, last example that you have actually in the paper, which is, I do want to talk about is, is Another thing that could affect our shared life world is enhancement of cognitive capacities and, in particular, memory. So maybe you could talk about how memory is important to how we we perceive and engage with the world.
2: Sure. know um, I like this paper because I use so much literature of books that I really enjoy reading. So mm. it was a fun paper to write. But um, in, in this case, we use examples from uh, Oliver Sacks. Uh, book the man who mistook his wife for hat and other clinical tales. He has so basically we, we start from the premise that we already have examples of how cognition matters for meaningful human communication, and so there are cases of disorders, disease that might already have changed our cognition in in ways that we can see that there is um. Communication problem. So he has a case of these two two twins, which are kind of a type of savants, type of uh, of uh, individuals. And he has two examples. He says the first one is when a box of matches falls, and they are able to you know very quickly say one hundred eleven, and then one of them says thirty seven, and the other one says thirty seven, and the other one repeats thirty seven. And then they, you know, they factor it so they they know that three times thirty seven is one hundred and eleven. And so for Sachs that was very interesting because when he has, you know, directly asked them about, you know, like this concept of factoring and and things like that, they they lost. They really didn't have a good outcome there. But when this happened, he. He really realizes that they they do they're able somehow to to factor, and when he asks them how you know how can they count the matches so quickly, they say, "Well, we didn't count, we just saw the one hundred and eleven so that's one part and then in terms of, um, of memory, then we use another example from a different author. Here we use uh, Alexander Luria and his book, The Mind of a Mnemonist, a little book about a vast memory, where he describes the case of a mnemonist patient that he calls S. And so he basically says that S has um, this incredible memory capacity, but at the same time, this Type of enhanced memory really prevented him from you know from from reading or, or abstracting and understanding simple stories and that he couldn't really establish meaningful communication with other human beings so those are the two examples that that would give in terms of of cognition and in particular the last one with memory
1: yeah so i mean in, in the case of the the twins from uh, Oliver Sacks, another thing that you, you mentioned is that they all communicated with each other in numbers. They used mm-hmm. to just kind of repeat numbers back and forth to one another. And, you know, they have a kind of a mathematical knowledge and awareness, but is very different from ours. So we have kind of arithmetical operations that we would need to perform on numbers to to um, understand, like, the factorization of, of 111, that it breaks down into 3 times 37, but and we would need to count up all the individual matches when we see them in order in order to arrive at that number. But they can somehow see this instantly. It's it's almost a intuitive or instinctual knowledge, or it seems to be that way when we talk to them. And numbers seem to take on consequently a, a meaning in their discourse that it just doesn't have in ours. And then in the the memory example, we yeah we often think that it'd be nice to have a better memory, and I'm sure. You forget lots of things in your life and I forget lots of things in my life that I would I would like to remember from time to time. Um, and I'm sure the students and these universities that we both teach in <laughs> would like to remember more things. But actually, it turns out that having a, a really good memory doesn't always have this kind of positive impact. And this gets back to something you were saying earlier about enhancement and the positive outcomes, because it, it changes how we perceive and understand the world, that we lose this ability to abstract and forget, which is actually valuable in, in some ways. Yeah, and I, I did not want to read actually just a very short extract from a story by Borges, who, it's a story called, I think it's Funes the Memorius or Funes the Memorius, mm-hmm. which which was based on this Alexander Luria case. And it, this is obviously fictional, but it's um, kind of close to the, the descriptions of what the experience of the mnemonist is like in, in Luria. So just one excerpt from the story. And I I just realized when I was reading through this beforehand that there are some Spanish names in this that I'm undoubtedly going to get wrong, so please correct me on some of these. So we, at a glance, can perceive three glasses on a table, but Funes can see all the leaves and tendrils and fruit that make up a grapevine. He knew by heart the forms of the southern clouds at dawn on the 30th of April, 1882, and could compare them in his memory with the mottled streaks on a book in a Spanish binding that he had only seen once and with the outlines of the foam raised by an oar in the Rio Negro the night before the Quebraco uprising. These memories were not simple ones. Each visual image was linked to muscular sensations, thermal sensations, etc. He could reconstruct all his dreams, all his half-dreams. Two or three times he had reconstructed a whole day he never hesitated, but each reconstruction had required a whole day. He told me, I alone have more memories than all mankind has probably had since the world has been the world. And again, my dreams are like you people's waking hours. And again, toward dawn, my memory, sir, is like a garbage heap. So I think just in that short extract, you get the sense of the the individual with this incredible memory for detail, having a radically different well, it seems to me, actually, that it's a radically different life world. They just have a very different way of experiencing and understanding the reality. And it's difficult for us to fully understand it. I mean, you can do it through this, through the words on this page and through the descriptions. But I don't know if that really captures what it's like to live that reality. And that seems to be like a, a communication breakdown. So, again, a radically enhanced memory could lead to this uh, communication, communication breakdown. Um, final question just on this topic, which is... Mm-hmm. Why is this important? Um, I mean, I guess it's important to be able to communicate with one another, but are there other deeper and more important ethical, social considerations at play?
2: Yeah, so in the paper, we kind of point to at least two different ones. So one would be the creation of a hermeneutic crisis, and the other one would be the impact on empathy. So, in in terms of the first one, we were wondering where there might be a point where the possibility of meaningful communication would would be eroded, so that we would not be able to to really reference to this shared life world. I mean, maybe from a more kind of social and political standpoint, you can imagine that we would not be able to discuss. From the same standpoint, whether certain technologies should be allowed or not, and that to me has important consequences for humans and then the other one, uh, the impact on empathy. well, we generally see empathy as this you know kind of ability to put ourselves in the shoes of of someone else. I mean there's a lot of things that we do through through empathy, but what would happen if you know we're not able to uh, through this kind of communication problem to really imagine what the other would be experiencing? So generally, we can experience if someone if if you know if you tell me I'm in pain, like my hand hurts, I generally empathize with you through memories of my own pain, even if if I've never had pain in my in my hand, I try to remember oh, but I have had pain in my arm, and then I can try to imagine how it would be like to have, you know, pain in my in my hand. But maybe there are some type of, of changes that might not enable us to, to empathize. And for me, it's clear that we already have examples, even without, you know, technology involved, where we have a harder problem empathizing with people that do not share our our beliefs, our cultures, even our socio-economical status. And so if we already have problems empathizing there, what would it mean to empathize with a type of post-human being? So those are the type of two things that I think, from an ethical standpoint, could have consequences and, and that are important that we keep discussing. Yeah, and they're kind of related
1: as well insofar as like this, the hermeneutic crisis could precipitate and create this empathy problem and the empathy gap and as you say this, this is something that, that that we already see in the world there's this empathy gap you know it's it's difficult for me to empathize with with people who live in very different cultures in different parts of the world versus you know people who just live in my city or in my local in, environment and who share my beliefs and outlooks on the world more more or less anyway and yeah this, so the technology enhancement technology could be adding kind of a new dimension or a new criteria for social exclusion. and We could be kind of bifurcating or dividing, further fragmenting society into these different enclaves. Would, that's, would that be the concern here? Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is then consequently something that is worth taking seriously, the the impacts of, of enhancement on, on this social communication and, and interaction and empathy. Let me then just ask the last question on, on, on this. Is there any prospect or any hope for enhancement technologies to to bridge those kinds of gaps, the empathy gap. This kind of gets back to the whole moral enhancement case that I, I mentioned at the outset.
0: Yeah,
2: I think <laughs> this is kind of the kind of technology double edged sword phase where technology can bring lots of good things, but technology can also have negative impacts. So here I obviously focus just on how technology can negatively affect. Uh, Human communication. But there are many ways in which we use technology to actually bridge those gaps of communication. So imagine a few years back, you wouldn't be able to be in Ireland and me in the United States and have this conversation, right?
1: Of course, yeah.
2: Or now they're coming up with these um, devices where if I don't speak Chinese, I can have my little box and this would translate almost at the same time what the other person is saying so I can, you know, respond and then the translator would translate and the Chinese person can understand what I'm saying in Spanish, for example. So that to me seems like a way in which technology are bridging these gaps of communication. Now, it is different to say that they're bridging gaps in terms of, you know, meaningful human communication. And by that, I mean the nuances of communication so because one thing is you know communication from this uh, point of view of how do I say you know something from point A and transfer it to point B then how do we communicate intentions and meanings and those type of things I think technology is having a harder problem to cut up with with us humans in terms of what we can communicate in more nuanced ways.
1: Mm, and I think you know, we all have experience of this with, let's say, social media, that oftentimes context and you know, tone or pitch of voice, these are all things that are lost in, in purely text-based communications. And even if we have technologies that allow for real-time translation, you know, we mentioned earlier on the problems with translating concepts or ideas into different languages, just the problems that you had with translating enhancement from, from the English into the Spanish language in, in a way that would capture the same meaning. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a perpetual problem in translation, uh, and it could always be kicking off these, you know, diplomatic um, crises. But again, it's, this is a problem that could arise even with those technological fixes that they don't capture that the true intention or true meaning of the person. So let's let's turn then to the other topic, which is uh, the interplay between enhancement and, and human values. So I know this is something that you're working on more recently. You have a paper from last year that I that I read on this topic and uh, it's also something that i'm i'm very interested in because one of the the key you know, limbs of this project that i'm doing is to look at the way in which technologies can both pose a threat to existing values and can also lead to or create new potentially transformative values in society so i i think that technology can in particular enhancement technologies and things like artificial intelligence and to some extent robotics as well can can do this and i'm curious to see how much you, you agree with those those claims. So let me just focus on, on a few main questions here and we can t- take the conversation in whatever direction it goes in. But let's start again with, with a definitional question since we're talking about the interplay between enhancement and human values. What do you understand or mean by that idea of a of human value?
2: Well, a human value would be like type of deals, goals, convictions, uh, belief that people in society have and they strive to achieve, so that's why values are also so connected to behaviors. So this kind of they they guide our behaviors, or they values can be considered as something that consistently uh, measures our behaviors and to, towards the pursuit of some of something. Could you give an example of a of a value
1: and how it has this kind of motivational effect? Just to make it a
2: bit more concrete. Sure. So if you think of, you know, I, I value, you know, safety, which okay. is a value that is a lot in the kind of human enhancement. So if that's my goal, then I would uh, not do things that are risky, right? So I would behave in, wage, in, in ways that will prevent me to get into risky situations. So my, my value can be achieved, which is remain safe. I can think of a different example happiness if my one of my main driving values is you know to be happy so that's my ideal that's my goal then my behavior kind of that like what motivates my actions if i want to you know cherish happiness then i'm going to probably do things that i know make me happy so if i know that going for my morning run makes me happy then i'm going to engage into more behaviors of that sort of and that behavior would you know be connected to me being um, to pursue happiness
1: well i'll just ask a couple of questions about this i mean some of those examples there seem quite individualistic do are values always individualistic or can you know values be possessed by a collective are there social values
2: sure so there's a variety of of different values of course so you have individual values you have communal values you have cultural values, uh, religious values. So there's like a, an array of different type of, of values. And sometimes they, you know, they're compatible with each other, but sometimes they conflict. So maybe my individual values conflict with, or my personal values conflict with the social values or the economic values of, of a society conflict with um, certain uh, cultural values.
1: Yeah, so values are are plural, so you're embracing a kind of a view where values are, there are many, and they can be incommensurate with one another or incompatible with with one another as well. Yes. I'm curious, do you you have a view on on value pluralism? Do you think that values are are incommensurate in the sense that they just can't, some values just can't be measured or compared on the same scale, or do you think it's always possible to rank and prioritize values?
2: I don't want to say that they're not, uh, it's not possible, but I do see that there are challenges in trying to compare them, for example. And I do see that in pluralistic societies. Maybe for me, and I think in the paper I mentioned this, there's uh, two authors that talk about protected values. So these are basically values that we decide that we're going to protect because they are really, we, we believe they're part of who we are, of our core identity. So we protect them because of that. So maybe for me, or for a certain society, those type of values exist. This type, this idea of, of values are core to an individual, and therefore the individual will strive not to to put them uh, to challenge to challenge them. Whereas for other cultures, it might be where values are kind of you know they're more uh, malleable and they come and go and they're not stable and if you think of all of those type of differences, then it makes, you can see that it's harder to measure values one another. I can do that maybe in my personal sphere. I can decide, well, I value more integrity than productivity. So I'm going to go and rest today rather than work in the office until midnight. You know, maybe tomorrow I, I decide differently. So that that's what I think is hard to say that human bodies can be measured and prioritized. We have to do that sometimes. We have to compromise things and in order to live in, in a in a poly, in a society, we need to make these decisions to say, well, you know, safety is gonna be a value that we're gonna base on our social policies. But those are decisions that we make kind of on the go based on maybe hopefully democratic deliberations. But that doesn't mean that you know, there are absolutes uh, there in the world of values. Yeah. I don't know if that, if that was clear.
1: No, no, that, that makes sense. So it, to some extent, how we approach values, how we prioritize them, how we protect some values, those are, th- these are things that are constantly being renegotiated both at an individual level and at a social level to, to some extent anyway. Uh, with the exception of maybe there, maybe there are a few core protected values that are always prevalent, but then they're at the margins there are new values and, or different values that we privilege and prioritize at different points in time. Um, and just one other thing then on, on the definition of a human value, uh, perhaps not unsurprisingly, the concept of a value is itself or can be value-laden. I think from your definition, you're not necessarily assuming that a value is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just it's something that motivates human behavior, it's a goal or aspiration for the individual or the collective, the society, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a positive thing.
2: Yes. I mean, I think there are values that already permeate our societies that, from a personal point of view, I wouldn't consider them to be positive values, right? But yet we still embrace them or society embrace them. So you're right. I don't have a particular view about values have to be positive.
1: Yeah, they're just they just have this kind of organizing and incentive it, or incentivizing function in, in, for the individual and for society.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Next topic then, so our question is, how does enhancement affect values? Or what are the ways in which enhancement can, can affect our human values?
2: So one of the ways in which cognitive enhancement can affect human values could be through changing in some indirect or direct way, kind of the brain, and one of the reasons why I talk a lot, a lot about the brain, and the, the reason why I focus on new technologies is because, for me, is kind of see a difference in what happens when we directly influence, you know, the organ that basically. It's not only the organ that orchestrates our bodily functions, but also the organ that is most readily connected to to our decision making, where you know our emotions kind of give rise, if you if you want. And it's not only the brain, of course. I mean, it's all the kind of our nervous system, all which means you know our it includes our perceptual capabilities and and these type of senses. So those those type of things could affect what we value. If I take a pill that presumably will make me to retain attention, my values would shift to, you know, maybe instead of spending time with my family, I'm, I want to be able to work more and more in for my university for instance. And so that would be a shift of values that would have an impact of what I value. And people might realize the difference if they see that I don't go out with friends and family anymore. So that would be one way. Another way could be the type of kind of more political and cultural and social changes that the uh, massive use of of these cognitive enhancements could bring. So if you think of what would happen, put the example of uh, athletes. Now that they, you know, they use these substances so that they can win or perform better. So now when it was only a few cases, you know, it it wasn't like this kind of impact. But if you think nowadays where they have to create a whole system for tracking and making sure that people are not using them, you could see how that also um, affects values at least in terms of the sports where it was thought that you know it it was about you know being in engaging either as an individual or as a team i'm trying to perform your best and all those type of things to kind of you know winning 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 now is kind of the the primordial value
1: Yeah, and actually that example is interesting insofar as it it highlights this complex relationship between values and technologies and policies, because athletic prowess, the spirit of fair play, of amateurism, let's say, in in athletics, that's what influenced Olympic athletes anyway, to train and participate in the Olympics. But then as money entered into even amateur athletics, there, there was the ability to win prestige for one's nation. So, you know, Success in Olympic Games and things like that have have often been tied to nationalism and national pride and still are for many countries. But also then for individual gain, you can gain money through sponsorship and endorsements. This creates an incentive for people to use technologies to win, to, to enhance their abilities so that they can win and attain all these advantages. And then this in turn creates an incentive on policymakers to create new structures to track and monitor athletes so there's a new value created again that the value of of tracking and surveillance of of athletes that's something we value to make sure that they're not cheating and so there's there's this constant back and forth and interplay between values and technologies so i I wonder what you think about that idea of this 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 interplay and uh, how it affects or how we approach technologies like like cognitive enhancement
2: yeah i i I agree. I think this is definitely this interplay between what we value, both from the personal realm to the kind of more collective social realm, to how technology, kind of the role it has in our societies, and then how we have to create these policies or governance structures in order to make sure that, at least in principle, to make sure that the values that we sh- which which cherries as a society are not are not lost
1: yeah because um, because we as the society still cherish honesty and integrity in our athletes and our the the victories of our athletes so we need we need to create some governance structure that um that upholds and maintains that set of values despite the fact that there are these other pressures coming from the the other side for victory and winning and that kind of thing yeah so let me just say what what kinds of values do you think are are driving and motivating the pursuit of of human enhancement in particular or cognitive enhancement in particular then let's talk about the the consequences this has for society but what what kinds of values are behind the the longing for enhancement
2: so at least in in the paper, I pointed to a couple of them so one of the first one has to do with kind of uh, competitiveness and and this idea of, of success. And this kind of goes back to the example with the athletes, right? Like you, you have this idea of, I want to be more competitive. So I have to train more, or you could just, you know, use technology in such a way that it gives you a competitive advantage. And in the case of cognitive enhancement, I mean, this is something that you keep kind of, it's a theme that comes in many of the kind of qualitative studies that they done related to con- the use of cognitive enhancements where people talk a lot about you know being able to just keep up with with the pressure at school with the amount of of work and so this is the way where you you can see that co- competitiveness kind of plays a, a big role there uh, the idea of success is Similarly important because many students that use these cognitive enhancers they oftentimes use them because you know they want to maybe get better grades so they can get a better job or be able to enter a better university and this of course kind of uh, if you think this these two values then you can see how that spreads into other connected values, such as productivity or efficiency of output. And for me, those three values are very connected with the type of values that we, we cherish in, in our technologies. So originally, my background is engineering. So I always think of what engineers are trying to achieve when they create you know, um, systems so that they become more productive, that they're more efficient, and about the output of the machine, for example. And so it seems like we're moving to have that type of, of values in which those are also important for, for humans. Then other types of values I talk in the paper are um, consumerism, for instance. So again, consumerism could be Good to a certain extent that, you know, it creates diversification and it allows us to individuate um, from others. But consumers can also be become a bad value if you think that it is through, you know, kind of media and marketing and this kind of social pressures that we are moved to engage into consuming certain type of things that otherwise we wouldn't. So that's where it kind of uh, takes its toll. And especially now, if you think of the neuro modifier markets where more and more uh, companies are coming up with either pills or neuro devices or, you know, uh, supplements to just to be better and well. So that's the kind of uh, a theme that plays in also in the human enhancement uh, arena. And then finally, I have individualism and freedom. And I think those are two values that permeate the kind of Western culture. So, this individualistic um, or individualism as like what you value is the individual, and if and having this freedom of if what I do does not affect the other, then I should be allowed to do what I think is right for me. So, those are kind of main values that I think. Uh, both drive and motivate many of the pursuits of, of cognitive and human enhancement. And
1: it strikes me that a couple of them, anyway, the first two in particular, they have this strange, I don't know if I want to say self-defeating logic. There's sort of a positive feedback loop between them, or maybe it's a negative feedback loop. If It's driven by competitiveness, so that a student who takes a cognitive enhancing drug, they do it because they feel that, oh, they need to do really well on their subject because they need to get a good job, or they need to... M- maintain a competitiveness with their peers, they need to be able to stand out from their peers. So they all start taking the, the drug and this sort of just raises the baseline for everybody because they all now need to com- compete on some other metric or some, on some other ability again. So, you know, you're constantly looking for more and more, more productivity, more, more abilities. There's no kind of end to, to that process, if you know what I mean. There's this, there's this constant feedback loop between mm-hmm. you and the, and the enhancement technology. The, the the real value underlying a lot of that is just a value for I think you mentioned this for just for continuous improvement that, that and without end you we'll know, never be satiated or satisfied by this is, yeah. is that that that's kind of a a negative value then that's influencing this whole process isn't it
2: yes and I think you know now that I'm kind of looking back at at these values it seems like sometimes values in a way I mean sometimes they can be positive and negative but oftentimes if you keep them like in in a certain level they're neither so if you think about competitiveness certain level of competitiveness is good because it's it you know motivates individuals to just don't kind of lay around doing nothing but you know it, it allows them to to actually engage in, into a more kind of uh, to put a little bit more work into what they do but when you take competitive to that, that is your primordial value, or that is your priority, then is when it might get this more negative connotation. So in the paper, I don't talk about this, but now that I was, uh, you know, telling you about this and thinking a little bit more, it, it seems like, yeah, maybe the the negative and positive connotations might come from where in the scale of the values that we prioritize.
1: Yeah, but I'm I, saying
2: this on the fly, so no, <laughs> feel no. free to.
1: But I mean, so I mean, to go back to the sports example, you know, a certain degree of competitiveness while you're playing the game is advantageous. You know, it makes it more fun to an extent. Maybe it encourages you to improve your your abilities or your skill levels. Uh, the problem might come not so much from from the competitiveness within the confines of the game, but more the importance or the stress that society the society around you places on your prowess in sport and the fact that that becomes valued more by society creates this negative or leads to this negative consequence because people just constantly then try to improve to match what society seems to be to be valuing. And, and there's an important role here I think for, for how we set priorities or set goals within society. Like, I think about this in relation to students a lot since teaching yeah. at, a, at a university and I worry about the kind of pressures that we place on students. And how a lot of measures or policies that we introduce just create even more pressure for them to do to do more, to be more productive, to be more well-rounded individuals. I mean, just to, to give one example, and I know this is probably much worse in the US than it is here. You know, traditionally, like the the way to succeed at university was to be good at academically, you know, to, and so there was a com- competitiveness within the academic ability or your success on the exams. But now we've actually said, well, it's not enough just to be. good student on your exams, there are other abilities you need to show, kind of extracurricular things you need to do, like being the head of a student society and organizing events or working for charity. And now we say you can include all these things on your degree. You you have a little portfolio of all your achievements outside of, of the academic curriculum and will allow you to use that to signal to others like your value to society. And, you know, maybe that's good for some people who are good at those things initially, but then it just creates a new norm. So everybody has to kind of raise their game to that level. So yeah, there's competitiveness, this desire for continuous improvement. And no doubt we'll find some new policy again in the future to encourage people to do even more to demonstrate their abilities and success. And yeah, how like how we set policies what we reward and incentivize has this impact. And that's what maybe leads to the values becoming more negative in certain contexts.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I see it not only with students. I also see it in terms of, you know, what academics are, the expectations that there are for academics are also putting a certain change in priorities. And you can see that if you think of the number of plagiarisms that, you know, they have been found in recent years. Where people in this ideal of of you know success and keep up with their grants and get tenure, they might engage into frauds, uh, capers, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is the problem in science of people faking results or, as you say, plagiarizing things because they're rewarded for producing novel novel scientific insights and and they're rewarded with funding and grant money. And that's how they're rewarded again within their institutions in terms of promotion and all that. I don't know if you mentioned this in the paper, but there's, and I don't know if you'd agree with it, but there's an idea here of a the general sort of neoliberal or philosophy, economic philosophy that we have in society is having this this impact across the board for students and academics, as you mentioned here, but also in other industries. Um, and this is also something that's driving the, the cognitive enhancement um, agenda.
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, you're right. I don't think I mentioned it in the paper like that, but I think one of the things I do mention, especially when I talk about individualism and freedom is this idea of, yes, most, most people in the kind of Western culture will see the individual as kind of the center of things where, you know, this is where liberal values come from. Whereas in other societies, they tend to have this more kind of collective or communitarian or relational way in which we as individuals are not the unit, it's the community that is a unit. Yeah, so, so
1: let me end then on the, the, the last question, which is, are there are there better kinds of values that could inform cognitive enhancement? I mean, or is cognitive enhancement itself too tied up with these other kinds of values?
2: Well, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic in that there are ways in which we can use our technologies to achieve more communal values, to, to have this kind of, what I would say, this kind of social enhancement in which we prioritize other type of of, of values such as sustainability, uh, responsibility. So those are things that very rarely you find in the um, kind of in the human enhancement discourse. But that I think at the end of the day, those are the type of values that we as a society, as a world, need now given the global challenges that we're facing. So I'm optimistic that eventually through you know, different discussions, maybe education programs, society and individuals gonna to come to an agreement of okay, yes, technology is not necessarily bad, human enhancement is not bad, but the ways in which we understand and and you know practice them, those are what might be creating these kind of negative outcomes. So how can we change that? And that's that's a challenge that I think we're facing now.
1: Yeah, and, and we've kind of come full circle then back to our original discussion of the definition of, of enhancement. And maybe this is a way of, of looking at what your your work is doing, is that by by broadening out the concept of enhancement to include this idea of human social enhancement, you're trying to improve the set of values that are at play or that motivate those participants within the enhancement debate. That broader focus moves us away from maybe some of these negative values that we've just been describing, and uh, towards a more positive set of values. And that's why you need that broader concept. Yeah. Okay, so I think we'll we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for for joining me for this conversation, Laura. Is there anywhere where people can find out more about your work?
2: Yeah, sure. If they in my uh, university webpage, so that would be. I mean, if you Google michigan state university cabrera neuroethics you find me
1: (laughs) okay and i'll put a link up to your your papers and your work as well to date um okay so thanks very much
2: well thank you thank you for the invitation it was a real pleasure to be discussing with you part of my work and also part of your work
1: thank you thanks